You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so, Father God, that is our declaration today, that we love you more than anything. We love you more than our jobs. We love you more than our accomplishments. We love you more than our educational resumes. We love you more than possessions. We love you more than our spouse. We love you, Father, more than anything. And we praise you in this place today. Now, Lord God, may the seed of your word fall on good ground. May it produce fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we are just continuing on in our series going through the book of of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, pick me up in verse 18 as you're making your way there. Went to my first Giants game. First Giants game, yeah. Yeah, it was game four. And... uh, you know, I, I went with, uh, I, I, I think I can say this, I went with Brother Sanjay here at the church and uh, um, bottom of the eighth inning, Giants are up five to two and Sanjay and I looked at each other and said, we got this and we, we want to beat the crowd and hop on the train early, you know, yeah, famous last words, we didn't have it, but my wife's a Cubs fan, so you know, I kind of was rooting for the Cubs anyways. Happy wife, happy life. Amen. Some of y'all are like, no, you should have kept it real. No, I, I want to keep it real peaceful. So anyways, pick me up in verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this, verse 19, is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also, verse 21, suffered for you, leaving you, underline this phrase, an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's get right to the point. God is after so much more than your comfort. He's after his glory. I'll say that again. That's a completely un-American sentiment. God is after so much more than your comfort. 
He's after His glory. You are not the center of God's world. Y'all quiet in here. We need to hear this because we live in a day and age called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is this whole notion that if I pay my tithes, I come to church, I do what I'm supposed to be doing. If I do good over here, then God's going to give me a happy, safe, comfortable life. I can get to buy the brand new range with the 26 inch rims and all that other stuff. Ain't nothing wrong with Range Rovers. Ain't nothing wrong with 26 inch rims. If you don't know what rims are, African-American colloquialism for hubcaps. God obsesses more about his glory than your happiness. It's bottom line. Let me tell you how obsessed God is with his glory. God will even at times allow evil things to accomplish his good purposes here on earth. God will even use the instrument of suffering. He will allow momentary discomfort for eternal glory and good. That's what he's after. This is what we saw in the USSR many years ago in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, there's this thing the USSR established called the League of the Militants. And that, that League of the Militants, it was established to really get rid of Christianity. And they decided to get rid of Christianity by inflicting suffering on Christians. But they, they realized something very interesting. The more they tried to make Christians suffer, not the weaker they became, the stronger they became. Exhausted and exasperated, the, the, the leader of the League of Militants, who was inflicting all of this suffering on Christians, said, this word, said, said these words. Will you look at them with me on the screen? He says, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Christianity, it's like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Now, if you know anything about the about Christianity historically, here's what you understand. Christianity has always, always, always flourished where the suffering has been the greatest. Christianity, flip side, has always been on a crash course to withering out, to flaming out, when it has become planted in a sterile, safe environment. So if you're going to connect with what we're talking about this week, last week, I don't like what our government's doing. I don't like what I'm seeing. It seems as if uh, this country is no longer a Christian nation, although we can debate if it ever was. But I don't like what I'm seeing in this nation. It seems like it, this nation is becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity. Well, well, you ought to be encouraged then. Because what, what Christianity does is it purifies God's church. It gets rid of the fakers. Christianity is like tea bags. You, you put in hot water, its true colors come out. 
And so what's true of the movement is also true of the individuals. That God oftentimes uses suffering and pain and discomfort to not only bring himself glory, but to do good in you as well. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, Behold, all things work together, all things, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So I want to talk today about suffering. Now, I don't like our text. Can, Can I just be honest with you? You've never heard a pastor say that. I'm just going to tell you. When when I teach um, theology on a graduate school level, I I always tell people it's impossible to read your Bible devoid of a cultural context. You bring a cultural perspective into your reading of the scriptures. You've got to acknowledge that. I can't help but read the scriptures, among other things, as a black man. That's how God's created me. Now, my ethnicity shouldn't be ignored. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, all of me, okay? But, but there are times, some verses in the Bible, let's just keep it real, I just don't like as a black person. And verse 18 is one of them. Can, can, can we just, as a young folks, can we just keep it real? I don't like it when Peter says, servants, some translations say slaves, be subject to your mess. I don't like that. I don't like it. What's going on here? Um, I was sitting on an airplane recently with a, with a young woman and we're sitting there talking and she's a, she's a young African-American woman and she doesn't know Jesus Christ. I'm sharing my faith with her. And she says, I just object to Christianity. I said, why? Because, well, the Bible, she says, isn't true. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible condones slavery. So I just want to speak to some of you who are here today and maybe you don't know Jesus Christ and you're investigating things of the faith and you're going, I have problems. This is a major impediment, you may be saying, to me coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't like verses like like verse 18. What in the world's going on? Well, what I want to say to you is that you need to understand Roman slavery was incredibly different from American slavery. American slavery was based on the primacy of race. If you're black, you're a slave. That was not Roman slavery. By the time Peter writes, there are over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and you became a slave for one reason and one reason only, and that is if Rome conquered your nation. Which means that the primacy here is not based on race. It is whether or not your empire, your nation was defeated. And if it was, there were many cases in the Roman Empire where slaves looked just like Romans. Second thing, American slavery was predicated on permanence. You were a slave for life. Roman slavery, you were emancipated by the age of 30. So it's incredibly different. But what is unique... What is common among both Roman slavery and American slavery is their view of the slaves. Aristotle says these words. Look at it with me on the screen. He says, there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. That's what he calls slaves. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So the Romans said, if you're a slave, not a person. Look at what Peter does. It's, 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 very, it's very authentic. It's very real. It's, it's incredibly ingenious. The fact that he writes and addresses a whole patch passage of Scripture to slaves is his way of subtling saying, you are a person. You do matter. 
In fact, if you read Philemon, Paul would tell Onesimus, a slave owner, about, uh, rather Philemon, a slave owner, about Onesimus, take him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. So the Bible does speak to it. Now, here's the question. Pastor, what in the world does a text about slaves and masters have to do with how I live? What does this have to do with the price of tea in China? What does this have to do with me when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning? What does this text have to do with me? A lot. One word sums up our text. It's the word mistreatment. Mistreatment. Paul is writing to a group of people who are being mistreated. They are, in their context, slaves who are, who are being abused by masters. And yet, the text tells us that here they are being faithful. They're doing what they should be doing. But these people are mistreating them. Live long enough in this life. I don't care who you are. I don't care how, how holy you are. I don't care how many consecutive days you've had your quiet time. You are going to run into people who don't like you and who will make it well known. You will be mistreated. You will have people in your life. You probably got them in your life right now that if you were on fire and they had a glass of water, they would drink it slowly. Just the reality. You're going to have, as the young folks say, haters in your life. Could be your boss who's going after you and it's just obvious he doesn't like you and maybe he's being aggressive about it or passive aggressive. It could be a coworker of yours uh, who's just gossiping about you. It could be someone at church who's talking about you. It, uh, it, it could be that passive aggressive mother-in-law. Could be your mom. You, you live long enough and there are people, I mean, you, 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 you live in the Bay and God bless the Bay, but one of the things y'all just did not do well here, y'all didn't do well with this whole freeway system and on-ramping people onto the freeway system. It's like, you know, you drive along, next thing you know, you done cut somebody off on the freeway, minding your own business, and now they pulling up next to you, speaking to you in sign language. I mean, that's just how it is in the Bay. And so live long enough, friends, people are going to mistreat you. I mean, think about my own kids. I'm just looking at them and just wanting to protect them, but they're going to have their hearts broken. I'm dealing with family members just going through a divorce and all that and dealing with an ex. And many of you all know what it's like to deal with an ex. And, you know, you're just going, hey, wait a minute. I know it didn't work out. Sorry about it. In fact, you actually caused the demise of the relationship. I just want you to do right by me and write your child support payments. And it's not happening. In this life, the Bible says you will have trouble. So how do I handle my haters? How do I handle people who are mistreating me? Paul gives us three perspectives on suffering, mistreatment. First thing Paul wants us to understand is that when you suffer, it does not mean you've done something wrong. Suffering does not mean that I have done something wrong. Look at verse 18. He says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering, not justly, unjustly. So, so the emphasis of our text is a person who honestly, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, sometimes I'll get people sit in my office and pastor pray for me, really hard time on the job, really difficult. And, you know, I'll start asking questions and we'll go into the conversation. They want me to pray. And then you realize, well, you ain't coming to work on time. 
You're doing, you, you, you taking two hour lunch breaks. You haven't met your goals. So I, you've now confused me. I don't know how you pray. I mean, quite honestly, you may need to pray about God opening up some other doors. This is not what's happening here. These individuals are showing up on time. They're doing what they're told to do. They're checking all the boxes. And then, and then word gets back to Peter. They're, they're, they're in sorrow and they're grieving. And they're, I just don't understand what's happening. Peter wants them to understand sometimes you can do things the right way and still be mistreated. If I can just lengthen this out. See, what happens to us, if I can just take it beyond mistreatment, some of you go, I I just found a lump on my breast or I'm waiting for some results to come back to let me know whether I got cancer or financial difficulties are happening or kids are just going berserk or I'm just in one of those seasons in my life when all hell is breaking loose and problems are coming. I don't know about you, but problems never come to my house one at a time. They, They always like to come together. They like to bring their aunties, their uncles, their cousins. They like to have a family reunion and you just go through seasons of this. And here's what we typically do. Now, what did I do wrong? Surely God is mad at me. Surely I haven't done what I'm supposed to be doing. Peter's saying in this text, nothing in this text hints at you did something wrong. In fact, he appeals to Jesus Christ, the perfect one who was wronged and executed on a cross. So let me give you some biblical examples. There's a guy by the name of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob meets this girl named Rachel, and we know Rachel had to be fine because what what Jacob said was, now I'm going to work for her for seven years. That's fine. That's that's fine. That's fine. So he agrees with her father, who happens to also be his boss. I'm going to work for you for seven years. In the seven years, give me Rachel. He works seven years. And on the wedding night, not during the wedding, that, that veil must have been been real tight. But on the wedding night, he realizes it's not Rachel. It's Leah. Here he is, they've made this agreement, and his boss has wronged him. And his boss says, work another seven years. Nothing in the text implies Jacob did anything wrong. Jacob had a son, his name was Joseph. Joseph goes to work for, for, for Potiphar. He's, he's a faithful steward. That's what the text says, doing it right, doing what he's supposed to do. Faithful, 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 showing up, punching in, punching out. And then one day he's just accused, wrongfully accused by his boss's wife of rape. And he has to go to jail for a crime he did not commit. He didn't do anything wrong. And this is where the name it, claim it, prosperity heretics have it wrong. And you've got to be really careful who you listen to on television, who you listen to on the radio. Don't just let a person with a Bible speak into your spirit. Because what prosperity people will tell you is, they'll say, if something's wrong in your life, you did something wrong. It makes you wonder what Bible are they reading. In this life, you will have trouble. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. In fact, what it could mean is, God trusts you enough to put more on you than what he could your neighbor. Because he knows you have the strength to handle it and handle it in such a way that he'll get glory. Some of y'all are like, I hope you don't trust me that much. I, I am thinking about Alyssa Picker. 
you know, the saint of a woman. And I hope we join with praying for her tomorrow. She goes in for brain surgery. And you see her and there's this picture of joy. So just want you to check a box. You're going to go through some things. And I hope you get liberated by this word. God is saying to you, I'm not mad at you. You didn't do anything wrong. Secondly, the second perspective Peter gives us on suffering is suffering is a gloriously golden opportunity to display God's glory. Suffering, mistreatment is a gloriously golden opportunity to display God's glory. We look at verse 20. For what credit is it, Peter writes, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Okay, you messed up, you did something wrong, you got what you deserve, but that's not your situation. He now says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. He says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, when you go through mistreatment, here's what you got to do. You got to stop and you got you to gotta go. I've got an opportunity here. To display God. So here's what he's saying. It, it's happened to you. Are you going to have the pity party? Yeah, yeah, you can feel. Yes, you can cry. Yes, we should pray over it. But it's happened to you. One of the first things you should say. See, see what suffering does for some of us. It turns us inward. We become incredibly prideful and narcissistic. Woe is me and why is this happening to me? And me, 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 me. Yes, feel it. But at some point, child of God, you ought to look and you ought to be able to say what the enemy means to destroy me with. I'm going to turn around and give God glory with. So I grew up. When I grew up, like, like most kids, I used to love going to the amusement park. And uh, at the amusement park, I used to love getting these glow sticks. You guys remember those, those glow sticks? Sometimes they were literal sticks. Other times they were kind of like necklaces you could put around you. And, and um, at night, I mean, they would just glow. Uh, but when I was coming up, the way you made a glow stick work, and I didn't realize this until later on, was there's a little capsule inside of a glow stick that when that capsule is broken, the chemicals begin to react with one another. And it, it, it interacts in such a way that, that now this thing radiates and it beams and it shines in the darkness. But in order to break that capsule, you've got to bend it really hard. If there's no bending, there's no breaking. If there's no breaking, there's no glowing. God is saying, I'm bending you right now. No, I'm not going to put more on you than you can bear. And if I put on you what I put on your neighbor, your neighbor wouldn't make it. But you ain't your neighbor. I'm trusting you with this. Yes, cry. Yes, be real. This thing hurts. My wife and I, I mean, we can tell you stuff that we've been through. Betrayed by friends. I mean, by people that we thought were friends. My wife and I, I mean, there's times I thought my wife was going to die. She's had surgeries. We've had miscarriages, wondering if we could get pregnant. And it is, we've just been through some things. And at some point, you've got to stop being an entitled adolescent. 
You've been saved 30 years. I want you to get this word. You've been saved 30 years, but you're acting like you're a 13 year old. Okay, it's happened. It's, it's happened. It's happening. I feel it. I'm crying. Yes, pray over me. Yes, I want delivered from it. This is not some masochistic sermon. Yeah, bring on the suffering. No, so God, I, I, I want you to heal me. But until that happens, while I'm going through it, get glory. As I'm waiting on the results, get glory. As I'm about to get operated on, get glory. Get glory. Get glory. This is how, this is how grown Christians act. This is how grown folk in the faith act. Thirdly, third perspective. So suffering doesn't mean I've done something wrong. First perspective. Second perspective, suffering or mistreatment is a gloriously golden opportunity to display God's glory. Thirdly, we suffer rightly and redemptively when we respond graciously. We, we suffer rightly and redemptively when we respond graciously. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, there's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So someone wrongs me. The way of the world is you wrong me, I get back. Now let me draw a parenthesis here. This is not a message that says someone wrongs you, just take it on the chin every time. What, what, what the slaves didn't have in Peter's day, they didn't have HR departments. Okay? Now, your jobs do have HR departments. And if someone is be, you know, sexually harassing you or discriminating against you, yet, yet there are legal channels you should pursue. If you're concerned about a child being abused, you can be uh, a sanctified Christian doing it the right way who is responding graciously to that individual while you take them to court at the same time. Those two things should go hand in hand. But what, ne what you never have a place to do is to take vengeance. Let God handle it. At times pursue litigation, but be filled with the spirit and in great love about it. Again, this is my own sister. She's just dealing with this thing in the aftermath and child support payments. She's as sweet as pie on the phone with her ex-husband, but putting her sanctified foot down and saying, you need to write some checks. Those two things can go hand in hand. So what he's saying here is you've got an opportunity. Someone's wronged you. Be gracious to them in your response. This is what the Bible calls heaping burning coals on their head. Don't respond the way they've treated you. He says, this is really the example of Jesus. He goes in verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued in trust. You know, Jesus, when they're, when they're talking bad to him, Jesus, I mean, he had a heck of a trump card. What did he do? Silent. Gracious. 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 All right, Pastor, I need something practical. I need something practical because I'm going through it right now. What do I do when I'm going through suffering and mistreatment? What do I do here? Verse 21. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example. I, I love this word, example. It's uh, Peter's writing in Greek, and the Greek word for example, it's hupogramos. Gramos is, um, is the word from which we get the English word grammar. It means to write. Hupo means under. Literally, example means an underwriter. It was used of how parents in ancient times would teach their kids to write. They would write letters, words, on a piece of paper. Then they would put a blank sheet of paper on top of that piece of paper that they had written on. And their kids would now trace the letters and the words that their parents had written onto that blank sheet of paper. He says, you're going through it. You're being mistreated. You're suffering. Here's what you do. You look to Jesus and trace what he did onto the canvas of your life. You look to him. At the end of the day, your girlfriend ain't your example. At the end of the day, your small group ain't the example. At the end of the day, not even your pastor's the example. You look to them, you get counsel, you get help, you get prayer. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. He is your example. Well, how did Jesus handle it? Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 7. Look at it with me on the screen. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he Open not his mouth when our Lord was crucified. In fact, that word excruciating, we, we, we get that from the Latin excruciatus, cruciatus cross, ex, out of. It literally means out of the cross. He was, he was convicted for a crime he did not commit. Long nails were driven in between his wrists. Long nails driven in his feet. Dropped on a post. Dropped in this, in this cross. All of his joints became dislocated. He now has his lungs filled up with mucus. And he has to push up to get air. The, the longest length of time it typically took to get a person to die that way was two to three days. The pain and the suffering of the cross. Yet not once. Did he exact vengeance? He took it. And if Jesus Christ can endure that kind of suffering, you can endure a little gossip. You can endure some slander. Doesn't mean we don't confront friends. But even in our confronting, we do so in love. He's our example, but secondly, he says, here's what you do with it. You entrust yourself to God. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting, entrusting, entrusting himself to God. The Greek word for entrusting, it literally means, is spoken of as a criminal who's apprehended by the state, and he's under the control of the state. Here's what, here's what Peter's saying. Listen, something happens to you. You're suffering, cancer scare, or it could be someone's mistreated you. Here's what you do. God... I'm, in, I'm under your control. God, you're calling the shots as it relates to how I respond, not me. Something happens. Here's what, here's what Peter's saying. Don't react, child of God. Respond. And to respond means I'm going to take my time. I'm going to submit 
See, here, here, here's what I want you to see. Suffering can either be a knife that kills you or a scalpel that heals you. I'll give it to you again. Suffering can, even, can either be a knife that kills you or a scalpel that heals you. The difference is when you go in to get operated on, you're submitting. You ain't fighting it. You're submitting. God, whatever you want done here, you're going to get glory. I am submitting to you. I'm wronged. I lay down my right tit for tat. Submitting here. Submitting. Now, one of the things I like to do as a pastor, I ain't perfect. So I love to just tell you how I've messed up. I messed up big time on this about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago. I struggled even sharing you this story. Hanging out with a friend of mine. A friend of mine flown in from Chicago. My best friend in life. We had a great weekend together. I'm dropping him off in an airport. I made a tragic mistake. As I pull up curbside to drop him off, I pull up on, on a crosswalk as a guy in a wheelchair is wheeling out. I'm blocking him. I've already gotten out of the car. I, um, I'm saying goodbye to my friend. And this guy in the wheelchair starts cussing me. I've never been cussed out like that before. And he's cussing me, combinating every different kind of cuss word. You, you, ever, you ever had folk just combinate stuff and you didn't even realize them words went together? Well, that's how he's doing me. He's just cussing me. And at first it's cute, you know. I'm chuckling a little bit. The police officer at the crosswalk is chuckling a little bit. You know, everybody's laughing. But after about 30, 45 seconds, it ain't cute anymore. But he's still cussing me. Now my blood pressure is starting to rise. And he finally says to me, I sure, and I'm cleaning it up. I sure do wish you was in a wheelchair because I would wear you out. And I said to him, and I sure do wish you could walk. And right at that moment, the Holy Spirit said, well, pastor, I'm feeling some judgment in this room. Now, y'all don't act like I'm the only one. And in a split second, I ruined my Christian witness. And now I'm praying he don't come to my church. If I was thinking about starting a special needs ministry, we were going to put that on hold for a while. One quick word. Not even praying about it. Just reacting. I didn't, re- I didn't entrust myself to God. And guess what? Lost my Christian testimony. Lost my witness. Hear me, child of God. Something happens. And here's how I love the way God tests. The way God tests is see the past failed. If you fail, you're going to retake it again. It'll be in a different form. That test is coming back around. Just as something happens, Pray. Entrust yourself to God. God, you are going to get the glory here. God, help me with my tongue. God, help me with my attitude. God, help me with how I'm, how I'm going to come across. I got to have a conversation with the ex. Help me here. I got to have a conversation with that boss. Help me here. I got to have a conversation with that person who wronged me. Help me here. God, help me. Respond. Don't react. Suffering can be a hammer. 
It can break you or build you. Thirdly and finally, he ends by saying this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's what he's saying. He says, when you're mistreated, I want you to remember, Peter says, you can entrust yourself to God because God cares. God is not some masochistic, unfeeling God that delights in your mistreatment. He actually cares. I believe God cried when Jesus, his son, was on a cross. I believe God was wounded by the wounds of his own son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. God cares, and he calls God the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The idea of an overseer is a person whose responsibility was to care for the whole city. They had to look over the whole thing and manage the whole whole thing. The shepherd, we understand this. But what he's saying here in context about a shepherd is that one of the duties of a shepherd was to protect the sheep from being mistreated by wolves. At times, what a shepherd would do then was he would put himself in harm's way to protect the sheep. On the cross... Jesus Christ put himself in harm's way. On the cross, when we had the most dangerous enemy ever, Satan coming after us, trying to get us to spend an eternity in hell, Jesus Christ stood in the gap, in my place, and for my sins, living the life I could never live, dying the death I should have died. He says, look to, look to Jesus. You know, when my kids were first getting their haircuts, they weren't great customers. They would squirm all over the place and cry. And about the second time, I said, I got, I got to teach these guys. It's going to be okay. So I had them sit down, and I went first to get my hair cut. And they watched me get my hair cut, and everything was okay when I had hair then. And, um, and then when it was their turn, I actually had them sit in my lap, and I held them tight. And, yeah, they winced a little bit, but they did much better because they saw Dad go through it. And that same dad was holding them tight. Friends, if you think you're suffering and being mistreated, it has nothing to do with the suffering and mistreatment that Jesus Christ endured on your behalf. You might be going through it, but he went through it. He says, look to him. And that same Jesus is holding you tight. He's holding you tight. How do we show we're different as exiles? We respond differently when being mistreated. We don't respond the way of the world, but we respond the way of Jesus. One of the clearest ways you can show friends that you're a child of God is how you handle mistreatment and suffering in this life.